the bench, off the bench was Carlson. Broke up the play, now he's in the rush. Takes the drop. Carlson across. I have a new career goal for us, Don. Okay. I'm really pumped about it, too. I'm hoping that, uh, let's see, we've been doing this uh, three years, right? So let's say 17 years from now, we're on our 20th anniversary victory lap. Okay. And you get fired from whatever company it is we work for at that time. Okay. For inappropriate tweets because yours usually are <laughs> uh wildly inappropriate right yeah. and uh we break up um i'm really hoping that we our media feud uh when you set up your own show the hey, don show i think i know where this is going and i keep ours yeah. is as fun and catty and uh and interesting as the current opie Open and Anthony, Anthony, yeah. feud that's going on have you been following that this week i uh saw Anthony was tweeting like YouTube videos of bridges blowing up. Uh, Opie sent that to Anthony. Actually. Oh, Opie sent. Yeah, it. and Anthony commented that it was that was a good one. That was funny, right? right. And then Opie said something like, "You're a human piece of garbage." He or did. Yeah, like, he, he definitely. So he went for it. Keep in mind, I would be hurt by that. So don't take it to that <laughs> length. Yeah, that was rough. Uh, but no, I, it's, all week I've been unable to kind of look away from the train wreck that is the crumble public crumbling. Of their relationships, it took them nine months to get to this point. I mean, Anthony was fired in July. Yeah. You know, and they kind of walked this tightrope for a long time. And I didn't press Anthony much on his relationship with Opie when we had him on uh-huh. because every interview he had done had that. Yeah. And I, so I didn't want to waste the time that we had with him, like kind of going through that, but when this happened, I I was pissed. I was like, man, maybe I could have been the guy to break the camel's back, and he could have <laughs> started throwing those initial shots on here. Or now, whatever. from what I saw, it seems like the only Anthony maintained the entire time that uh, just that maybe that they had grown apart type thing, but he didn't make it sound like it was a bad relationship. And the only real negative I got out of his interview was that he said Opie is sensitive to the point that even guests and comics have to watch what they say. Yeah, Anthony's main point. Anthony on Monday did a free show. Oh, it was free. I didn't realize yeah. that. Okay. Uh did a free show where he spent the whole 2 hours uh basically breaking down uh the relationship and that was in response to them kind of getting at each other on Twitter over the weekend. Right. Uh and the basic theme of the show, they picked up on something someone wrote on Reddit of walk. Uh, they used the term walking on Greg shells, shells yep. which I had the wrong song. OK, so I kept singing in my head, walking, on walking in Greg shells, <laughs> like the walking in Memphis. Oh, OK. And it's actually what you said. Oh, walking on sunshine. OK. So I, I didn't know there was a song behind either. Yeah, it was. it's a parody of. You oh, know, OK. Yeah. Uh, and Anthony's point was that, you know, Opie set the tone for the room and his attitude on a daily basis would set the tone. And I can see that. Uh, 
my thought always with their relationship was because people always just point out that Opie's not funny. Like that's the thing. If you don't right. like the show, even if you do like the show, your your complaint about Opie might be that he's not funny. But my thing was always he's the radio guy. He's the one that like is the glue that keeps it all together. But so I could also definitely see and that Anthony never said Opie's not funny. Uh, a caller called in and said that Opie was a PDU with a microphone. And Anthony actually sort of downplayed it a little bit. Now, the problem was the next day on the Opie and Anthony show, or on the uh, Opie and Jimmy show, uh, Opie responded fiercely back uh, while admitting he didn't listen to what Anthony said. <laughs> and Jimmy kept sort of correcting Opie and saying, no, he didn't say that. And encouraged Opie to listen because he felt like getting bullet points from other people, other people who probably want to pour uh, more you know, gas on the fire right. was not the way to go about it. In the end, after listening to Opie on Tuesday, it's really hard to take a side. He really comes off as the one who absolutely uh, took advantage of Anthony being fired as a way to end the Opie and Anthony show without having to be a bad guy at ending the Opie and Anthony show and taking the extra money from Sirius uh, to do his own thing. You know, Jimmy came out and admitted that he got a 30% raise in the new deal as opposed to his usual 20% that he would get from them. Oh, okay. So Jimmy basically said, look, it, Anthony got fired and I got an extra 10% out of it. Uh-huh. He even said that he had called Anthony the night before to tell him he was going to resign, uh, talked about the possibilities of working with Anthony and, and if he considered it. And Opie has been completely silent about what it has meant for him. Right. And the problem is, is Opie wants to be a less open about everything, yep. but wants people still to be on his side. Yeah, Anthony got out front of and it. And it's so. hard to do that. And Jimmy made a great point and said, if you would have just called Anthony in the beginning when his show first launched as just a sign of support, and even if it was just, a, oh, man, this sucks, our brand is gone, they finally got us, uh, hopefully we can get together in the future, even if you didn't mean it, the haters that have attacked Opie, and it's been very slanted between the fans, sticking with Anthony compared to Opie, at least publicly, I think a lot of people who stir this stuff don't subscribe to Sirius and don't even subscribe to Anthony's <laughs> right. show. Right. You know, they're just in this to, to kind of get these two millionaires, which we can't lose sight of, they're millionaires, right. uh, arguing. But it's hard to take Opie's side. So I hope that in 20 years that I'm, I'm the Anthony, that people want to take <laughs> my side, uh, believe me, and that everyone's going to hate you. Well, it so shows you, hope. it shows you, and this happens a lot, that in media, the thing you can do is just get out in front of it. And Anthony did that. He did an entire tour where he was very politically correct. I really don't think he – I mean, he came across pretty genuine about not disliking opium. He supported just, them for resigning. He said he understood. Right. So he, uh, the one thing he's complained about is that he didn't think that Opie did enough – to fight for his job initially when he was fired, and he's probably right. Sure. And it's really hard to take Opie's side on that because all of the uh, Anthony called it quote unquote forensic evidence just points against Opie, who doesn't want to be open enough about this situation for you to for you to feel for him. And then you look at it, and it's like Anthony goes on his show for two hours. He's diplomatic. He doesn't take sh- personal shots. He just kind of explains how it is. Uh, people call in. He almost sort of defends Opie. And then on the next day, 
Opie talks about how much he hates Anthony, how he couldn't stand being around him, how he right. infers he's an alcoholic, um, talks about how he couldn't wait for the show to end, uh, talks about how Anthony wanted the show to end, even though Anthony is out there denying that, which doesn't help his case. And uh, Opie just looks really bad, and and then he even cried on the air, oh, yeah. which was ironic because it was the first official day of the Fez retirement, and Opie is now crying on the radio. Uh, the same Opie that a few days before was very much mocking Fez for crying right, radio. when announcing the, the retirement. So uh, in the end, uh, look at I'm going to be an Anthony guy, I think. Yeah. You know, I yeah. just he came on our show for one, which is huge. Sure. Opie has not been on. Uh, Jimmy hasn't been on either, even though he said he would come on. So that doesn't help Opie's case for some reason. <laughs> uh, and uh, I listened to both. I subscribed to both. Um, I subscribed to Anthony's because I really wanted to listen to the first day, and he made it such a good deal to pay for a year that I just said, screw it, I'll just pay for the year. Right. And uh, it the show's gotten better and better, and when they move to New York, I think it's going to get even better. Right. And I think that if Howard doesn't re-sign, I'm just going to cancel Sirius and, and stick with uh, – and go Anthony, I guess. Wow, there you go. You know, so I don't know. Well, yeah, similar thing happened with Adam Krola's podcast when he fired his news girl. Right. Adam, his first, right. was very, almost like he didn't want to air Dirty Laundry, and then fans kind of pushed him and got on him, so he gave like kind of a half-assed reasoning behind it. So then fans blasted him even more, and then finally he's like, look, here's what happened, here's all the reasons I fired her, and then everyone was just kind of like... And you know what's funny? I heard all that, oh. because that was the day that Anthony was on his podcast. Oh, that's So right. I heard all that. Right. And you know what? I get his thing. Like, if for some reason, and it's not too far-fetched, I became this breakout media star in things besides this podcast, like, because that could easily happen. Like, I could end <laughs> up being on TV sure, oh, for yeah. some various things, you know. And if I were doing all these other projects besides the sportscasters and you didn't, like, watch them or acknowledge them or want to talk to me about them, I could see being bummed about that. Right. In addition to that, she didn't even want his brand, like, the reason she's popular. Right. Like, on her website. On her website stuff, yeah. or on, uh, like, attached to her podcast. So, yeah. So, I I'm mean, that Corolla in that one. All I that think. stuff came out and yeah. then everyone kind of backed off to, like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, right. the public wants. He made a really good point about how he wanted her to be his Robin to Howard Stern. Yep. And she's not like that. If anyone knows anything about Robin Quivers, they would know she'd be the last person to watch America's Got Talent. But as soon as Howard was on it, right. she watches every episode, one, so she can talk about it with him on the show, and two, because she wants to support her guy. So I get that. I think the way these radio personalities are different is that you talk to people for an hour, so you'll kind of invite them into your your life, your world. So then if you go away or something changes and you just go silent about it, then people get pissed. They get they get suspicious. Yeah, so the bottom line here is to remember down the road if this happens. I'm getting way out in to front make of it. sure you take <laughs> you take team Steve because clearly Don will be the heel in this case. Right. All right, let's start the show. Uh season 5 episode 11, uh, April 9, 2015. Uh Andrew Buckholtz, a guy you might not know, uh he covers the CFL for Yahoo, uh, which isn't why we're having him on. He also covers uh, sports media for Awful Announcing, and he covers uh, TV and pop culture for the AP Party. Uh, he's a board game fan, uh, Don and Andrew. Don actually took part in this interview. I did. Uh, his first in a while. Uh, Don and Andrew will talk uh, book, uh, excuse me, um, board games a bit. 
Uh, so we're excited to have him on. And uh, Rob Mish is going to make his uh, second, third appearance on the show to talk about his book, 11th Heaven, which we've been featuring uh, in the book club. So uh, you ready to do three things? Let's do it. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, on Monday, Duke won their fifth national championship under Coach K. Coach K now has uh, more national championships as a coach uh, than anyone in men's college basketball who isn't wooden. So that's nuts. Yeah. That's uh, you know, one icon who won, I think, 10. He can't be UCLA. that old either, right? I mean, there's no reason to think he can't win. A few more, right? Right. I mean, the re- and, and another reason I think you can't win a few more is, I mean, they're like a one seed every year. Right. You know, I mean, he's uh, five and four in championship games now. So, I mean, they've been in nine NCAA championship games since he's been the coach there. So that doesn't happen often. Uh, it was an interesting Final Four, actually. Uh, obviously, Kentucky didn't go 40-0. and uh, They lost to Wisconsin on Saturday. Uh, same exact score... Uh, 71-64, that Duke beat the last undefeated team in the Final Four. UNLV was the last undefeated team to make the Final Four, and Christian Leitner and Duke uh, beat them in 91, I believe was the year uh, for that one. Um, And uh, Wisconsin gets to the title game. Uh, Duke blew out Michigan State. I think they won by 20. Uh, And then that brought us to Monday, Duke versus Wisconsin. Uh, Two number ones. I think it was the first time since 2008 for that. And uh, Wisconsin absolutely had Duke on the ropes. Uh, I think they had a a nine-point lead at one point in the second half uh, with Okafer on the bench in foul trouble, uh, Winslow on the bench in foul trouble. And in the end, Duke just outplayed them uh, the last five minutes or so of the game. And Duke got more physical, got more calls in the second half. And uh, unfortunately, the Wisconsin coach after the game uh, went sore loser. Just totally went sore loser, complained about the refs. Really? uh, Complained about how uh, Duke, uh, well, he said something like, we don't rent players here. Mm. uh, Basically accusing Duke of being this, like, one-and-done program. Right, right. Even though his team has, like, the worst graduation rate in D1 basketball. No I think he's graduated zero African-American basketball players in, like, the last however many years. Not good. Yeah, uh, that makes two games in a row then. Kentucky kind of went sour grapes when they lost too, right? Yeah, well, the the really interesting thing with that was uh, the one Kentucky player, the one Harrison brother, uh, mumbled, fuck that nigga under his breath. Oh, at the press conference. Yeah, at the press conference um, in reference to uh, the star of the the, – of the Wisconsin team, but I, look at that's just a classless thing. Sure, yeah, uh, it's a it's a kid making a mistake in a moment. I don't think it was a racist thing at all. Um, I, I didn't get any of that. Uh, and the kid apologized to the player, and it seemed like the player moved on, and we all should too. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I'll say about that, and also the Kentucky kids walked off the, a lot of the Kentucky players walked off the court without, without shaking, shaking hands. hands. Right. That to me is a cultural, uh, a program culture thing. 
Like, that's on Calipari. Like, you don't, like, I, I'm going to use this example only because I know it. Yale Hockey, Anthony and his teammates under Keith Lane would never skip a handshake or drop an F-bomb at a press conference because the culture of the team of the locker room is absolutely not that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about winning with class and losing with class. And absolutely, there's a lot of uh, programs across the nation that are that way, and clearly Kentucky isn't that way. Right. And that's cultural to me. You know, that's a, that's a team culture thing. And Calipari needs to needs to change that, I think. Sure. Um, so it was a good it was a good Final Four. I thought it had a great upset. It had a really exciting title game. The first half of the of the Duke Wisconsin game, there was like fourteen lead changes. I mean, it was awesome. It was the most of any game I watched all tournament for sure, uh, and it was a good one. Uh, you obviously didn't watch it because you didn't did not. seem to have all the details. When you no, got I did not. So this was not on your radar. No, I blame it partially on my vacation and uh, mostly on my general poor <laughs> attendance when it comes to college basketball. Uh, next week uh, will be the start of the NHL playoffs. Uh, there's only two games or so left in the regular season. Uh, thank God. Uh, I think we all feel that way here. Uh, the Sabres have four more games between them and Arizona to either win the last pick or not, uh, if that's such a thing. Four more chances at it. They only need one loss or one Arizona win to do it. I'm still very confident they will. Uh, not nearly as panicked as some people are uh, just because the Sabres beat Carolina, which absolutely was the game they would most likely win right yeah when they beat toronto last week that was their most winnable game and then after that game was over carolina was their most winnable game so right and they did everything they could to lose it sure right i mean everything they could yeah they almost blew a four game lead in the third period but i didn't want to get bogged down in that right now i kind of wanted to look a little bit at potential playoff teams and matchups in the west uh the only team that can make it that isn't in the top eight right now is Los Angeles. Okay. And the only team that could fall out right now is Winnipeg or Calgary. Would you want to see LA in over Winnipeg or Calgary? Probably either. Um, on the one hand, the sour grape side, if I'm going to go there, I can't. I know the odds would be highly, highly against it, but I can't watch Los Angeles win Connor McDavid. Uh, that team is way too good. That's like... The year Peyton Manning gets hurt happening to... Like, how hard is it to be a Colts fan since right, let's, let's focus on the playoffs, though. I know we're obsessed with Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel. Um, but would you rather see Anaheim LA in the first round, or would you rather see Anaheim versus Winnipeg or Calgary in the first round? Anaheim LA is definitely a bigger rivalry, I would say. But Winnipeg and Calgary are both probably cooler hockey markets, Uh it's fun when they're in I the I shouldn't playoffs. say cooler. I should say, like, more average Joe. Uh, I mean, L.A. is a cool market for the, oh, look, there's uh, Vince Vaughn or Will Wheaton or whoever in the audience. Uh, you're not going to get that with Winnipeg and Calgary probably, but you are going to get crazy parties in the plaza and all that, whatever they call it there. And uh, I don't know that either team is all that good, Winnipeg or Calgary. And I, I, Los Angeles has shown they can be an eight seed and win it all. So, I kind of don't need to see LA in the playoffs again. I would rather risk their one percent at McDavid to have them out 
and get to see uh, Winnipeg and Calgary in it. Winnipeg's interesting because there's like three Sabres on it right now. If it ended Former right Sabres. now, uh, if we called it at 80, so everyone in the West has played 80, we'd have Anaheim versus Calgary. I've got Anaheim and Winnipeg. I have Calgary 8th, according to this. Oh, but is, is it a case of Calgary being 3rd in their division? This says Calgary has 95 points, Winnipeg has 96. So Winnipeg has more points. Yeah, so Winnipeg's in 7th. They have oh, more points. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they can't be in 8th with I'm more points. I'm looking at ESPN's thing here. Yeah, I would go to NHL.com. ESPN clearly knows nothing about hockey. You can't be ranked ahead of a team with more points. Right. I mean, technically, you can in this situation because the wild cards get ranked seventh and eighth, but I don't think that that's the case here. No, you're right. I mean, they hit, they even say Calgary ninety five points, so it'd be Anaheim, Calgary. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Okay. Here's what I think ESPN is doing, and they're actually sort of right. Uh, Calgary is the third seed in their division, and I'm pretty sure that guarantees them the sixth seed. So, oh, okay. That's you see, bizarre. You see what I mean? Yeah. So there is a case. Uh, the The top three seeds in each division are seeded one through six. So the wild cards are seeded seven and eight. So they are right. It would be Anaheim, Winnipeg, right now. This new system sucks already. Right, and then it would be um, St. Louis versus Minnesota. Right, and then it would be. Um, so, of course, NHL.com, who I tried to give some street credit to, uh, doesn't have the standings <laughs> uh, set up to, to follow their own uh, logical system, which does suck. You know, I, I, Here's why the system stinks right now is because the way they have it now, uh, you get matchups of, like, if you talk about, like, league-wide, you're going to have some teams that are playing, like, like the 16th best team is going to be playing like the 14th best team, which shouldn't happen. They should be playing like someone near the top of the league. But because it, it's real weird that way they have three division leaders and then two wild cards. It can, the wild cards can be from either division too, correct? Right, right, yeah. It's just the top three in each division and then uh, one to eight. Can you, where do you find like a good look at this? If you go to ESPN standings, they have a current playoff matchups on the uh, right-hand side of the screen. You just click on it; it'll take you to the current matchups. So you go on league standings. Yes, and then it says playoff scenarios on the right hand side. Hmm. Oh, okay, I see. All right, all right. Now we can go through these since <laughs> the NHL has a ridiculous system set up. Okay, this is good. Okay, so we'd have Anaheim, Winnipeg, right? Vancouver and Calgary, which would be really fun. Right. Uh, it'd be a great uh, late night games. You know, a great second half of the night. Uh, could be really interesting there. St. Louis, Minnesota. Uh, that could be really interesting. See, Vancouver, Calgary is an example of one of those that Calgary is the worst team in the playoffs if you go by overall league standings. Vancouver is like the 12th best team. So Vancouver, by virtue of whatever, being the third best team in their division, right. is going to get like a really nice matchup. Whereas, I don't know, someone like St. St. Louis has to play Minnesota or Chicago has to play. Chicago and Nashville is ridiculous that those two teams have to play each other right. in the first round. So basically what the league has set up is a 104-point versus 102 series and a 97 versus 95 series. Right. That doesn't make any sense. People are going to turn on this system quickly. Quick, yeah. I mean, just go just go 1-8 to eight again or just do away with divisions. Just go to two just conferences. Just go to two conferences. Yeah. yeah. 
so yeah, Calgary, Nashville, or excuse me, uh, Nashville, Chicago would be unbelievable in terms of first round hockey. And It'd Kane be a lot. Should be back, right? Is he back right well, now? Well, uh, Kane was projected to be back for the conference finals, but he seems to be way ahead of schedule. Right, I heard he might even play. And right they're here. talking about him playing uh, in the playoffs. Oh, yeah, good. So that'd be unbelievable. That'd be like a lot like Chicago St. Louis was last year, if you remember their classic right uh, series from last year. Uh, in the East, um, Ottawa is the only team in the hunt that isn't in the playoffs. We played their highlight of them kind of staying alive last night. Uh, they could very well get in. Uh, Pittsburgh, Boston, or Detroit uh, could fall out uh, still at this point. Uh, but if it ended today, we'd have Montreal versus Pittsburgh, which would be very exciting uh, to have the two biggest uh, Canadian hockey players in the world right now and Carey Price and Sidney Crosby. Uh, playing games in the number one Canadian hockey city right now, Montreal. Now, I'm not sure if we talked about this on the air before, but I know we've talked about it with our Pittsburgh friend, Matt. Pittsburgh, for all their successes, is a terribly run franchise. Well, yeah, right now they're not a good team. They have two superstars who are carrying them to a level above what they are. Right. I mean, other than their defenseman, who I'm... Latang. Latang. They've Injured right now. drafted terribly other than the guys that they were all... like. That anyone at home with a cheat sheet could right. Well, in the, in the, the, maybe their number one mistake in the draft was picking uh, a Jordan Stahl instead of uh, oh, right, that too. instead of Jonathan Taves. Right. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, people for the longest time have talked about the Pittsburgh model in beyond being bad and drafting early. You don't want to do anything like Pittsburgh. No, the Chicago does. model is what you want. Can you imagine? Like, had Crosby gone anywhere else, he'd probably be in a better shape right now other than having Malkin as a teammate right uh, Chicago is what you want to do where you have the two guys you build the support system around you win a cup obviously then you lose some of those guys from salary cap you build it back up and you win another cup right uh Tampa Bay versus Detroit doesn't interest me that much I wouldn't be that pumped about that series I think Tampa might be really good though for a long time oh yeah they're set up great yeah, yeah. uh the Rangers versus Boston uh, Boston is a team I wouldn't have minded missing the playoffs. They're another one of those teams that when the Sabres were in the gutter, I mean, they're still in the gutter, but when the Sabres were kind of middling, you looked at Boston as this big, tough, complete team, and uh, they made some really bizarre signings and let some good players yeah, go. Yeah, they blew like, it with Sagan. And they loved to have Sagan Boychuk yeah. is now in the with the Islanders enjoying his time there. and Washington uh, Islanders, which should be the last matchup, would be a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, Tavares and Ovechkin, the last games at Nassau Coliseum. Uh, that'd be a really uh, fun series. We probably won't spend too much time talking about series that won't even be series right. in 12 hours. Uh, but next week we'll have a lot better perspective on this and we'll bring someone, one of our hockey friends on. Yeah, talk, so if you're uh, watching at home, hockey playoffs. Ottawa, week. Boston, Pittsburgh are teams to watch. L.A., Calgary, and Winnipeg are the teams to watch. Although that one's almost over. I mean, yeah. Calgary, Winnipeg's three points ahead of L.A. So that would be really tough. Uh, we always talk about the NFL uh, making it hard uh, to love them sometimes. Sure. Uh, and that's very much in the forefront right now as uh, jurors are deliberating uh, the fate of Aaron Hernandez. Okay. Uh, that case is just about done. And maybe by the time we even post this, uh, the jury will be uh, back and have decided whether or not uh, he's guilty or not guilty. So that's going on. Uh, Sarah Thomas. Uh, is one of nine officials hired. She's the first full-time uh, woman to uh, ref football. Any opinion on that? Um, good 
first of all, I'm, I'm fine with her being there. I have no problem with it. I don't I haven't heard anybody with any problems with it. The glaring thing to me is how young she is. Like, why don't they get... Everyone should be younger in there, the men included. It's nice to have a young face in there. Did I ever mention my, like, idea about how they could change yeah, I think it's with great. the Ivy League and get stuff? Get the Ivy League football players that aren't going to be anything. Right, just... And- Hire them full time and sure. have like oh it'd be so good. The full time thing is a big thing, and and also I mean, look, why do we have sixty four year old lawyers refing NFL games? That's why it sucks. Right. That's why the officiating sucks, uh, no doubt. Uh, so there was that. We're getting closer and closer to the draft. Um, I've heard the NFL going back to officiating a little bit is not going to change what is a catch at all. They're yeah, more concerned about too. the extra point, which nobody cares about, than the catch thing. And I heard a suge- I've heard suggestions before that are perfect, like. If you come down with two feet, just take one more step. Instead of saying something ambiguous like make a football move or go to the ground with the ball or anything weird like that, two feet down and then a third step. That's it. That's a catch. Uh, schedule should be out soon. Uh, and the draft is about 20-ish days away. And it's going to be hard to get down into the draft this year because his team is barely, yeah, it is. barely yeah. in it. But I'll be all gung-ho because... The Saints have never had this many picks. The only thing I'll in, say is Doug, Doug Whaley, the general manager of the Bills. Not uh, afraid to move. Not afraid to make moves. I think he's made more moves than maybe any team in the league other than like Philly and maybe New England or somebody. So they, they make he makes moves. People, I, I'm a little bit nervous about how much people like the Bills. Like Those articles are starting to come out now about the worst-to-first type teams and the teams that missed that are going to make it. And almost all of those mention the Bills in one way or another. So... I'm a little bit nervous about. Did the Bills finish last last year? No, the Jets. No, 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 no not they. Yeah, they wouldn't be a worst to first, but they'd, they'd be, be a team a, that was uh, out. Team that was out. Yeah, that, that could be in. Yeah, I could see him being in. I could see him being out. Yep. Uh, anything else? Nah, I don't think so. That's it. That's three things for today. Uh, we're gonna take a break. We'll come back with uh, Andrew Buckholtz. We'll do book club. Uh, Rob Mish is the second interview, and then we'll end with one last thing. Our next guest was born in British Columbia, Canada. Currently lives in California. He uh, covers the CFL for Yahoo Sports. Uh, writes about the sports media for Awful Announcing and even covers some TV and pop culture. He's the only other person on the internet who is wondering at 3 a.m. if Ricky ever got parole. And he is uh, making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Andrew Buckholtz. What's up, Andrew? Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I have to say, I love the Skid Row intro music, uh, especially uh, featuring one of the best uh, Trailer Park Boys guest stars ever in Sebastian Bach. So. Yeah, they just had a new season of Trailer Park Boys go out, They right? did. They did. Seems like... Made in culture spreading to the world. Yeah, thanks to Netflix, right? Is, is Netflix, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Netflix is really what has given uh, Trailer Park Boys a, a wider distribution, especially in the U.S. You know, living where I do in Buffalo, though, um, like Canadian culture is is a huge part of the culture in Buffalo. Like, you know, we're we're a city where the tragically hip can sell out arenas. 
Right. That, sure. like, like that's not unusual. You know, it's, I used to go, but, I, I've told this story on the, uh, on the podcast before that when I was younger, it wasn't that unusual for my family to cross an international border so that we could have Chinese food for dinner. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I mean, it's definitely the case the other way around, too. Right? I mean, you look at all the, the Canadians who go Especially to games, who go to Sabres games and so on. So uh, that region, for sure, there's a lot of uh, cross-border interchange. Yeah, especially since the Canadian and the U.S. dollar have gotten closer over the years. And even some, mm-hmm. there's been points where the Canadian dollar has even been worth more, which is crazy for someone. When I think I went on my first shovel hockey tournament when I was five, I gave them a 20 and they gave me like $39 back. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it definitely has uh, changed a little bit over the years. Right, and now that it's closer, uh, sh- the shopping, I mean, even in the worst parts of the U.S. economy, like in 2008 and 2009, uh, Buffalo, which is sort of notoriously uh, blue-collar and, and maybe not mm-hmm. known for having a great economy, stayed relatively strong because of shopping and uh, right. how much the Canadians, uh, from as far as, you know, uh, I don't know if, if I'd say as far as Ottawa, but, you know, mm-hmm. pretty far north and east and west of Ontario will come to Buffalo to shop. So it's definitely been huge for uh, huge for the, the city. So it's very much a... Um, a uh, uh, and uh, uh, Can-Am connection is very strong in, in Buffalo for sure. But uh, anyway, uh, I was excited to get you on the show. Um, I was reading off the bio there, uh, talking about some of the things you do, and uh, you wear a lot of different hats. And we talk a lot about sports media on on the show. We talk a lot about uh, we talk to a lot of people who cover sports. Rarely, very rarely do we talk to people who who actually play them, just because. It tends to be very boring. We have a lot more fun with the people who cover them. But um, how did uh, tell us a little bit about you and how you uh, got from British Columbia to California and writing about sports media and covering the CFL. Tell us a little bit about your evolution as a, a member of the of the sports media and branching out even beyond that now covering uh, pop culture and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's been a long, a long, strange road for me, really. Um, I, I come from a journalism family. Uh, both my parents are journalists, and but uh, I never really wanted to do it as a career growing up. I was always going to go into science. Uh, I went off to, I uh, grew up in BC uh, near Vancouver, and I went off to school in Ontario, actually, at uh, Queen's University. And it was there where I really got started in sports journalism. Uh, I started working for the school paper. I uh, did that for three for three years. We did a lot of uh, stuff on uh, university sports. And what was really uh, helpful for my career at that time was I got connected with some other uh, some other people who were writing about Canadian university sports and uh, wound up doing uh, the CIS blog with a couple of them. So I wrote about Canadian university sports there. That really helped me get into regular blogging. Uh, and then after after school, the combination of that and uh, the, the, new, the campus newspaper experience I had uh, helped me get uh, some community newspaper jobs in BC. I kept blogging on the side, writing for a whole bunch of different publications. And then five years ago, I wound up uh, with Yahoo doing the CFL thing. I've always sort of uh, had, uh, I love the CFL. It's probably my favorite league to cover, but I've always had interest beyond that, though. So uh, I've always been doing sports media stuff on the side. That led to the awful announcing gig a few, a few years back. And everything has just sort of grown from there. 
down in California now because of my uh, lovely wife, who is uh, from from California. Uh, we we met through uh, some friends uh, involved in sports media, actually. So uh, yeah, uh, well, we met met her, got married, and uh, now I do all of my uh, Canadian football writing from California. So uh, it's a bit of an interesting situation, but it's uh, one I'm very happy with. You mentioned covering uh, Canadian. Uh, sports, uh, university sports, and it's always fascinated me. Uh, the the college hockey in Canada, it's got to be the oldest, some of the oldest uh, uh, collegiate athletes in the world because mm-hmm. it's not just like in the United States where the hockey players tend to be older because they'll play a couple years in the USHL or uh, mm-hmm. junior leagues and then go. But some of the guys who play college hockey uh, in, in Canada have kind of banked money from the CHL and then even will mm-hmm. go on to play pro for a bit and then go back. I mean, there's some really old uh, players, 26, 27-year-old players uh, playing college hockey in Canada. It's kind of a really unique dynamic. It really is. It's something I think that is very, uh, very undercovered and very, um, very underenjoyed because, in my mind, CIS hockey is a tremendous product. It's a tremendous quality of play. And I, I would say, on the whole, it's far better than the than the CHL, than the major junior, just because of that age difference. Because uh, a lot of the guys you have playing Canadian university hockey, um, the vast majority of them are vets of one high-level junior or another. Uh, some of them major junior, some of them junior A, junior B, that sort of thing. And they're just they're more physically mature at that point, and they've got more experience. Now, you obviously. You don't have the real high-end talents. You'll never get a guy like, say, Connor McDavid or Jack Eichel in uh, Canadian university hockey. But it's still a, a tremendous quality of play. There's a lot of uh, very impressive players in it. But at most schools, it's not really a big thing. And it's not even really a big thing for a lot of students. So I think uh, the more exposure CIS hockey gets, the better people will realize that it is. Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic, and I think it you know it is improving. Uh, and uh, over the years, it's definitely uh, changing a bit, especially since the CHL specifically uh, started uh, competing a little bit, losing players to the NCAA. Once that mm-hmm. started, and they started granting you know money for every year you were in the CHL for a future time in university uh, in Canada, I think that that is uh, has absolutely helped the quality and the exposure. You know, we talk a little bit. Um, on here occasionally about uh, people who cover sports media. Richard Deitch is a good uh, friend mm-hmm. of the podcast um, and has uh, helped us a few times and, and, and been on and uh, loves to come on and bust our balls and stuff like that. So we like that. Um, and he can be very pol- polarizing, I think. Uh, but it's interesting how um, as his uh, – as his – uh, prominence has grown a bit and how awful announcing uh, certainly is a huge part of this as well has grown a bit and um, uh, and we've gotten more involved uh, interacting and in social media and things like that that the idea of covering sports media seem the the interest in it and the idea of it seems to be less niche and growing a lot more uh, stories uh, about it are uh, on the front pages of sites like ESPN and SI, and obviously the incredible popularity of awful announcing. What do you think about uh, the idea of covering sports media from when you started and where it is today, and and what kind of growth you think that uh, that's uh, having? 
Yeah, I, I think it absolutely has grown. I think it's become something that a lot of sports fans care about more than more than they ever used to. And there still are plenty of people who absolutely are just like, just give me the scores, just tell me what's going on with the actual players. But uh, I think because of uh, how the sports media has changed, um, how we're now at a place where there's so many outlets trying to do trying to do sports coverage, and we're in a Twitter age in particular where you can really pick and choose who you follow, um, where you get your information from. I think that helps uh, people have a lot more interest in the various on-air personalities and even in the sports media people who cover them. So uh, yeah, I think I think the interest absolutely has grown. Now there's um, a notable comment. I thought from uh, Jay and uh, Jay and Dan from Fox on their podcast about awful announcing read by everybody in the industry, and that's it. Well, uh, I don't think that's really true anymore. I think absolutely, it's great that it's great that uh, people in the industry care about sports media. But I think there's a lot of people outside the industry who care about it as well, and who are. Uh, I think that's a positive sign for where sports fans are at this at this point in time. I think there are a lot of sports fans who are uh, very interested in, say, how the sausage is made, in uh, what's going on with these different networks, with these various on-air personalities and even behind-the-scenes personalities. Um, one, one example I think is really fascinating there is a guy I'm writing about today, uh, Jamie Horowitz, a former ESPN producer, uh, briefly employed at NBC. Now it sounds like he may be heading to Fox. He's a guy who you'll never you'll never see on TV, but he's a very important behind the scenes player, and he's somebody. It's people like that that sports fans um, are starting to pay more attention to. Do you think it, that social media is the biggest uh, reason for the drive in exposure uh, for this kind of coverage, or do you think it's uh, the personalities who cover it that have helped grow it? Um, do you think it's the really clever snark or um, uh, the way that maybe awful announcing initially uh, grew? Uh, what do you think? Deadspin even was maybe a big part of this. What do you think? What do you think the reason is for it? Uh, the the growth of interest and the recognition of it. Yeah, I, I think I think all of those reasons are factors. Um, I would say I would say Deadspin played a big role, and not just Deadspin, but a, a lot of the sites that sort of sprung sprung up in the early days of, of sports blogging. Uh, Deadspin, the original awful announcing, uh, the the stuff that the big lead has done over the years. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. A lot of the real rise of sports blogs was about different perspectives, uh, about uh, sort of uh, perspectives that were different from the traditional mainstream coverage. And the mainstream coverage really only focused on the, on the field, on, uh, on the players and the athletes involved. And even when you would get a great Sports Illustrated profile or something on an athlete, um, it, it would still be on an athlete, rather than there weren't really a whole lot of media stories. I think uh, the, rise of, the rise of sports blogs is a, probably the biggest factor, and not just, not just those big ones like Deadspin and the Big League and even Awful Announcing. Um, I think another part of it is the rise of uh, bloggers who are fans of teams uh, and uh, successful uh, sites like that, like SB Nation, like Fansided, like, and so on. Because when you have those people who are writing about teams that they care about, well, a big, a 
big part of what they're often writing about is the media coverage of their team and how they feel about the media coverage of their team, whether whether it's fair, whether it's accurate, uh, what their problems with it are, and so on. I think uh, the, the rise of those uh, those people as writers is a huge part of why people care about sports media now. Um, I think social media is a big part as well. And I think another part, too, is just that there's been more and more good sports media coverage, I think. I think uh, Richard Deitch is really an excellent example there. Of, he's a guy who can make just about anything interesting, really. I mean, uh, you, you read his stories on, say, sports like uh, women's college basketball that don't necessarily have a huge following, but he always finds an interesting way to get there. And obviously, on, on Twitter in particular, too, I think he does an excellent job of sharing stories both inside the sports media realm and outside the sports media realm. So he's got a lot of followers who I think aren't necessarily interested in sports media. And then if he... If, get the exposure for somebody like that uh, means maybe some of those people will take a look at a sports media story when they haven't historically been willing to do so. You know, one of, uh, you mentioned Deitch, and it just reminded me of something I wanted to ask you about. One of his big uh, big crusades on Twitter, one of his causes has been uh, women in sports and the way they can be treated poorly. And there was an example recently um, in Chicago where a couple yep. of uh, – couple of radio guys, I guess, uh, were complaining. Well, well, the first guy, I don't know if he was even complaining. It, it was almost like, his, I think his original tweet, I'm paraphrasing, uh, people can look it up, was something about, you know, I watch this one reporter struggle, and mm-hmm. uh, I want I want her to do well, um, but it's she's kind of struggling a bit. It's kind of what he was saying. Like, he's kind mm-hmm. of rooting for her, but he saw the struggles. And then another guy kind of, piped in and was like, well, I'm not necessarily rooting for her, but I do like her breasts or something like that. Basically, that was the exchange, and I'm paraphrasing for Mm -hmm. sure. Uh, And obviously, second guy, asshole for sure. And, uh, you know, he did, you know, he he went on to do his uh, do what you do when you get caught doing something like that, you know, with Mm -hmm. apologizing and uh, scrambling and trying to save yourself or whatever. Uh, What was interesting to me about it wasn't necessarily them. It was Katie Nolan and kind of her response. Mm-hmm. Uh, her response, again, paraphrasing, was basically saying that the second guy probably had a small dick. And she mm-hmm. did use the word dick. I'm not paraphrasing that either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder what you think about Katie Nolan in the sense that her shtick, and I do think it's shtick to some degree, is being this kind of really tough, uh, sort of vulgar girl who... I don't even know how I want to describe it, but she's got that kind of persona where it's not really mm-hmm. shocking for her to say something like that. But I mm-hmm. wonder what you think if she could be the first person on the female side who gets herself in trouble for something like that. Um, because I kind of feel like she's kind of walking a really fine line of playing that up and getting people on her side. And I just wonder mm-hmm. if maybe she could say the wrong thing about the wrong person and it can turn on her. Do you have any opinion about Katie Nolan and the whole thing and where it might fit in? I think I think that's certainly um I think that's certainly possible. I think Katie Nolan probably does walk closer to that line than just about any uh, than any other woman in the sports media. Uh, but I think it's very 
it's very positive, I think, to have somebody be in that role or somebody who's willing to, to come close to that line. Whether you like Katie Nolan or not personally, I think um, that's uh, that role of, uh, of a woman who's willing to fire back and willing to address sexism head on and maybe do so in an offensive way. I, I think there's some, there's some value to that. I mean, I, I think I think there's also value to to just, uh, taking the high road too. But I don't think everyone needs to take the high road. And I think it can be good for the overall state of sports media to have somebody like Kate Nolan who's willing to say that. Now, uh, as you said, I mean, she she walks closer to the line than a lot of people. It may get her in trouble at some point, but I think you have to give credit to her for what she's done so far and for uh, the, the willingness that, that Fox management has had to back her and to give her, uh, give her a platform now, not just on the web, but also on TV with her new garbage time show. Right. I, I think it's really important to have people, um, to have women in the, in the roles of, like, incisive commentary and editorials and and calling out who they don't like and what they feel is wrong with sports. I think one big problem with the state of the sports media right now is, that, is it's not just that there aren't enough women in the field, it's that they're pushed into the wrong roles and they're held in roles where they don't necessarily get to do much. That's what people always talk about with sideline reporters and uh, there are people who do sideline reporting very well and make it a very valuable thing but then uh, there are a lot of people who uh, sports media viewers who think that sideline reporters are only there to look good that's right, where but, you get that, dumb comments let me right? just, let me jump in a little bit though one yeah, one sure. thing one of part of what you said there though is on absolutely on the networks because there's no doubt that plenty of people have been and still are hired, especially mm-hmm. for television, because mm-hmm. they look good and because they sure. are sexy. Um, and sure. uh, that's a huge problem um, just as much. I, I, cause, and I would be most frustrated if I was one of the uh, one of the sideline reporters who, whether I look good or not, is very good at mm-hmm. it. You know, cause sure. Because you could still like you could still look good and be good at it. It's not necessarily Absolutely. mutually exclusive. Uh, the problem is, is we see people all the time hired who uh, very much seem like they just look good. Um, but but the thing about Katie Nolan, which and I absolutely agree that there needs to that it's really refreshing and kind of cool and fun to have someone uh, that's on the other side of that and not afraid to fire back. I just don't know if they need to necessarily or she needs to necessarily be sexist to make her point or crude even. You know, I don't know if she needs to uh, immediately fire a small dick comment out uh, to play mm-hmm. that role. I'm not, I'm not offended by it. I mean, she, she could say, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not that sensitive or whatever. But I mean, if you yeah. want people to not, I guess just the way I was raised, I mean, my mom always told me, you know, she would have said something like, well, if you don't want people to comment about someone else's boobs, the best way to do it might not be to comment about their dick, I guess. I don't know. This sounds really well, silly, I, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I think, I, think there, I think there's a point there, and I think her response definitely did, um, definitely did turn off some people and definitely um, made some people uncomfortable with how she responded. 
I think for me, I guess, uh, I think there, there's value in putting that out there, even if it, like, it's, sure, it, it's not a, it's not a high road comment, um, defensive to some people and so on. But I think in some ways her saying that, I, I mean, I think it illustrates just how sexism looks when it's turned on its head, really, right? Like, it, if, if male reporters are going to be out there and make comments about uh, female, how females look and uh, the size of one woman's boobs, I, I don't. I think it's it sort of, uh, I guess, a, a bit of a, a, a turning that on its head. And just how would you feel if this was about you? So I can see why. And I think that's what she was going have, for there too. Sure. Yeah, I, to defend her, I think that's what she was going for. You know, I don't yeah. think she was being sexist, you know what I mean, or anything like that. I think she was absolutely turning the guy on her head, you know what I mean? It, it's just, um, you know, I, I don't know that, I hope that most people didn't need her to point that out to realize that the first guy wasn't, was it, was an idiot, you know, but I, do, but if the first guy would have said to this, if the, if the guy who made a comment about her boobs simply would have said, you know, I'm frustrated because it's clear that this person was just hired because of her looks. Um, mm-hmm. If that's his opinion, I, I don't know that that is an invalid or inappropriate opinion. Um, you know, but that's not the issue because he, he didn't go that route, obviously. Um, he went a, a much different and cruder and uh, route for sure. So, yeah, I don't know. absolutely. Well, and I mean, and I think, I think there are some other interesting developments with this story. Um, uh, first off, this was from 670 uh, AM, the score in Chicago. And, uh, the, the guy who got in trouble for this was Dan Bernstein, who made, uh, who made right. the boobs comment. I think he really, I, I think to his credit, I think he really has realized since then that he screwed up and realized just how completely unacceptable that is. Um, I think his apology was well thought out. But what really interested me is some of the stuff that came out afterwards. Um, uh, Tim Baffle, I don't know if you know much about him or follow him on Twitter, but he's a guy who writes for their website, won, uh, won a competition to write, write for their website a little while ago. And he published a very interesting thing after that about his how it felt for him, essentially, to have one of his colleagues doing this and why he didn't call him out at the time and why he, he felt the need to later and just about the general environment of working for a radio station and working for a radio station that at that time was pretty much all just male employees. So I think that it, 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 he wrote a, a very interesting piece on that and one that I thought just illustrate some of the wider issues at play here in the sports media. Why did he and say he didn't call him out at first? Hmm? Why did he say he didn't call him out initially? He, well, his, I'm paraphrasing here, right. but uh, he, he said that A, he, he was doing other things at the time, and B, he felt that as somebody who's very low on the totem pole, who only essentially writes for the website, he didn't really feel he didn't place, feel right. he could call out one of their biggest personalities. That's fair. Uh, and uh, he said basically, this is inspire me that if I see this in the future, I am going to do that. I was wrong. I should have spoken up, and I should have said something about this. And I, I think that's an interesting point, and I think it's one people should consider. Yeah, I almost think if you don't do it right away, you shouldn't though, because because mm-hmm. then it's just sure. like you're just you're just riding the outrage wave, and it's, sure. it's you know what I mean. Either lead it or stay out of it. Sure, you know no, what I, I mean. I, 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 I can 
I can see that for sure. But I, I think the his the point is fair, though, about who he is and who the other guy was. That's a fair point. Well, and I think the interesting point there really was that it's on. Um, I, I think it's on men, even who aren't being who aren't being sexist and who aren't okay with sexist comments. I think it's on men in this industry to speak up when they hear those and to tell people that that's not cool and that's not acceptable. Because uh, I obviously, I mean, there's there's caveats to that. Not every time, place, and venue is appropriate there. But I think one of the ways you make this a better workplace and a better uh, the sports media a better environment for women is to have guys not just be bystanders when they see that stuff. Right. And, you know, the the thing that we really need too, especially people who are interested in the idea of uh, f- criticizing sports media, doing the things that Awful Announcing does, is we need the unnecessary stuff out so that if a, a, a female is hired in a job and we don't think she's good at it, that can be evaluated based on the job without everyone just mm-hmm. thinking the person is being sexist. You know? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, that's... I mean, I, I think when we get to that point, we'll, we'll have made a lot of progress as right. a society, really. Uh, I mean, I think it's difficult to do that right now because there's so many layers of connotation that goes into everything, that goes into that evaluation of her. Are you really evaluating her on her looks or on how she does her job? And I think the thing that comes in there, too, is... I'm not sure, like, I, I think there are, there are some people who do sideline reporting very well, but I think sideline reporting is a thing where even the best sideline reporter can't necessarily make it useful every given game. It depends who they're talking to, it depends when they're talking to them, it depends how they respond to the reporter's questions, and so on. And I, I think... All in all, it's a pretty small role in the grand scheme of the sports media. And so that's why I think it's really important to have people like Katie Nolan in a position where they can offer their own comments and their own opinions and their own editorial slant rather than just be there to ask other people questions. Right. I think for Katie Nolan to be the most effective, though, she can't totally just be... Uh, well, she can be if she wants uh, the girl who just goes after the guys like I think she would make it like if she came out and said, you know, this girl here isn't that good at this because of this, mm-hmm. um, that might open that up and make it OK to do that without it being sexist. I don't know. I probably sound terrible. Uh, I, w- w- some of the things I'm saying, but I, I don't mean it to come off that way. I just think that, um, I just think that, I guess it's frustrating for me because I would just love to be able to, uh, not have these like dinosaurs out there like that guy, mm-hmm. you know, talking like my grandpa, uh, mm-hmm. my grandpa who was born in, you know, 1905 and, you mm-hmm. know, like has these archaic views on the world. Like I, I wish those guys were gone so that we could just get to a point where um, we could just talk about uh, these people a little bit more level. But it's just not like that yet at all. So Katie Nolan, though, could could absolutely start bridging that gap and changing things a bit, I think. Well, and I think what's important to note, too, is that Katie Nolan is not the only one out there. I, I think, no, um, just the biggest I, I saw an, 
I saw an interesting piece on this, really, uh, talking about how how few women, um, this is uh, sfb.com, I think, but anyway, talking about how few women in the whole sports media industry are in columnist positions and are in uh, uh, positions where they can offer opinions rather than just reporting. But it, it, was, it was very low overall, but one thing that really stood out to me in that is that the vast majority of those women who are uh, columnists or commentators or so on work for ESPN. And I think some of them do an absolutely outstanding job. Uh, I would say uh, Jane McManus in particular is somebody who I will always read and who has some very, uh, very insightful takes uh, on sports. And I think that's something valuable that ESPN has done too, and especially with ESPNW, which has had some of its issues. It hasn't been consistently great. But I think one thing that has been valuable with ESPN and with some of the commentators they've had, is they're not just talking about gender issues. These are women who have been empowered to have a voice on regular sports uh, topics, not uh, not any different from your typical male columnist or analyst. And I think that's really important. I think it's very important to, to have women in those normal roles and in those roles where they have power and have the power to criticize. Um, Jane Levy is uh, an author, uh, a brilliant one. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read her. Uh, she wrote the Mickey Mantle book and the Sandy Koufax okay. book. Uh, mm-hmm. And she's been on our show a bunch of times, and she's she's great. And uh, I was on a message board one time. I can't even remember which one it was. And I just clicked on a link because there was a thread about her. And mm-hmm. someone had said, uh, you know, I'm so frustrated because every time I hear anyone interview – Jane, all they want to talk to her is about women and women's roles in sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's mm-hmm. such a great, you know, baseball mind, and no one ever picks that. And then, like the yeah. next comment was, "Well, you should hear her on the sportscasters because they talk baseball with her." And nice. at nice. first, I was like, "Oh, that's great." And then the next time I had her on, I asked her. I said, yeah. "I told her about it." And I said, "You know, at first I felt really good about it, but then." The next thing was I was questioning myself, like, am I doing this wrong? Like, do, am I bringing on the the most respected voice on this maybe and not not asking her about these things? And she kind of laughed about that and said, uh, no, you're not doing it wrong. But that that was like the way I took it, like, oh, shit, am I, am I you know, bringing her here and not – and and you know so I I it, it was a weird thing where I was like wow I love mm-hmm. just talking baseball with her and getting her sure. perspectives on the Yankees but apparently no one else is ever doing in that so am I the one who's doing it wrong I I wasn't sure you know so yeah I mean I think I think really the the desirable end goal there is for it to be both for uh, women in sports media to be able to offer opinions both on uh, on how women are treated in sports media and in sports in general, but also just on sports. And uh, I, I think r- really that's when we'll have made some progress is when the, those are both acceptable topics for female sports writers to cover. Uh, the sports guests are here with Andrew Buckholtz. He writes for Awful Announcing and Yahoo and uh, even covers some TV and uh, culture stuff. He's at Andrew uh, B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z on Twitter. Uh, we'll kind of wrap up a bit, but uh, a while ago we had this guy on named Brett Martin who wrote a book called Difficult Men 
uh, a really mm-hmm. cool book. I don't know if you've ever uh, heard or read about it. I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah a really read, cool yeah. book about like the anti heroes in television, mm-hmm. uh, the Tony Sopranos and the Walter mm-hmm. Whites. And uh, I wanted to ask you just to at least pick one part of the uh, third hat that you wear. Uh, did you watch Better Call Saul at all? And what did you think about uh, being back in the Breaking Bad world, if you were a part of it, and uh, how you thought they did with that show and uh, where you kind of landed in terms of expectations? Yeah, uh, I, I've been watching Better Call Saul. I think it's been great so far. Um, I was a big Breaking Bad fan, and so, yeah, it's it's nice to be back in that world. I think that they've been very effective by showing a different side of that world. Um, I think that it makes far more sense to do a show of, of, fo- of focusing on James McGill or Saul Goodman as he becomes, uh, who really was sort of a minor character in the first bit and just show the story of how he got in, how he got involved in all this. I, I think that makes much more sense than like a, a Walter White prequel would have or even a Jesse prequel would have. So I, I think they've done an excellent job with it so far and really shown off a different corner of that universe. And that's something I'd hope maybe more TV shows would do at some point. If they're going to do a spinoff, do a spinoff that's very different rather than just uh, another uh, another recreation of the original. Yeah, and I'm kind of really interested to see how uh, McGill Goodman, how he how he breaks bad exactly, and if that's really going to sort of be the focus of just this other guy's story of Breaking Bad in a way, and if he becomes like another anti-hero, or if we like the character less as he changes. Because I know one thing that I read, uh, I think Seppenwall or someone uh, did an interview with one of the showrunners, and one thing he said was is he was surprised how much uh, everyone in the room seemed to like James McGill. And um, I think a lot of people are feeling that, really kind of liking this guy. And I wonder if uh, ha- – like we didn't have a really great relationship with the pre-Breaking ba- Breaking Bad um, Walter. Uh, we kind of really went in and then he started breaking pretty quickly. Whereas we have mm-hmm. a full season now, and he really hasn't broke at all yet. So I wonder if they're going to be able to make him an anti-hero, or if we're going to grow apart from him as he changes. That was one thing I was thinking about it. Sure. Well, and I mean, I think that was an, an issue with Breaking Bad in general, and I think that's a thing that's difficult when you're writing TV and when you're writing anti-heroes in particular is you may you may sort of develop them one way, but the audience doesn't necessarily see it that way um in with breaking bad in particular i think there were a, there were a lot of people who were actively rooting for walter and jesse Absolutely, at yeah. very at various points of it right mm-hmm. and so that um vince gilligan has said the creator has said uh, he didn't really intend that like he he was out to show essentially how bad this guy was and yet that wasn't how everybody reacted and so i think i think it's a similar case with better call saul in that people are going to respond to this character differently uh, some some people are going to be very very touched by his story and to think his moves are are reasonable and then there are the other people who are, who are like no, you you would never go that far you would never put yourself in that situation so uh, i think um 
I, I think the creatives may may or may not have a certain intention in mind for him and how the audience is supposed to react to him. But regardless of what their intention is, uh, people are going to react to it differently. You're going to find some people who seem uh, maybe as a hero the whole time and some people who maybe seem as a villain the whole time. Don, do you have any uh, board game issues you'd like to discuss with Andrew while he's here? No, I was looking through his uh, his Twitter pictures, and I think his board gaming goes a little deeper than mine. Really? A little bit. Oh, yeah? yeah. What, what games are you into? Um, more of the uh, kind of, uh, what do you call them, like gateway games. Like Catan is okay. kind of our gateway game, and then uh, Lords of Waterdeep is as deep as we get into D&D. That's and, an excellent one, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so mine would be anything you'd find on the Board Game Geek uh, Holiday Shopping Guide type thing. Fair enough. I don't think mm-hmm. I get much deeper than that. I've heard of most of them that you play, but I haven't played any of them so far that I've seen. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, it's it's a fascinating hobby, really, because it, it you can explore it on all sorts of different levels. Um, I thought it was really interesting this year seeing a story in uh, the Wall Street Journal about how the Green Bay Packers were very into the settlers of Catan. Yeah. Right, yeah. And that's obviously one of the more modern board games that's become sort of more popular and much more widely known. But it's a hobby that you can explore uh, as deeply as you want, really. There's lots of very good games out there without a whole ton of copies of them. And then there's a lot of great gateway games like uh, like Catan and like Ticket to Ride, Lords of Water, all that sort of thing. And those are pretty great games in their own right. So uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with uh, enjoying those ones. What's your number one game, Andrew? What's your favorite game of all time? Ooh, I think I think I'd have to go with Power Grid for that. It's uh, just a fascinating economic game, and uh, they've made so many different map expansions for it. Uh, they're all different countries, and each gives you the feeling of what the particular power generation challenges in that country are. So, what's yours, Doc? I don't know. It changes all the time. I, Catan would be the one that got me into it, so that right. that would probably mm-hmm. be like in the Hall of Fame, but. Uh... I don't know what it would be right now. Do you have, uh, how is your pile of games that you've yet to play? Do you have a pile growing like I do? Yeah, I, I've got I've got a pretty good pile. I think I'm probably at about 80 or 90 games I own at the moment. So um, it, you definitely, it's always a challenge getting time to get them to the table. But there are so many good games out there and so many good ones I don't own. So it, it's, a, it's a hobby that definitely uh, can run for uh, quite a while. My problem with it is I'm the one that buys the games, so I have to learn all the mm-hmm. games and then right. teach the games. So I'd, I'd kind of appreciate it if one of my friends bought a game and then taught me it. But So i got to read all these rules to all these games I haven't played yet. I'm still trying to find a way to have fun playing Clue with only two players. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Just remove the I'm di- failing, though. Remove the dice rolling. Oh. That's the stupidest part of that game. All right, Andrew, why don't you uh, tell everyone who's listening uh, to this and hearing you for the first time where they can read you and find you and all that good stuff. Absolutely, yes. You can, you can find me on Twitter at Andrew Buckholtz. Uh, you can uh, always see my sports media work at Awful Announcing and the work of our incredibly deep and talented team there. Um, you can, and you can find my CFL stuff on Yahoo Canada. I'm surprised that there wasn't a uh, another Andrew Buckholtz. Like I'm surprised you're the definitive Andrew Buckholtz. 
yeah, I, I don't know about that. I, I get a few Google alerts for my name, but they're mostly like high school basketball scores and that. So the high school basketball player out there is definitely not me. Yeah, but he's tearing up. He's going to be the pretty soon. He's going to be the college, and then he's going to be on BA, and then he's going to want to buy your name. <laughs> yeah, you can make five or ten, happen. ten grand on it. All right, man. Thanks a lot for uh, all the time and, and having fun and just talking about some different stuff. We really enjoyed it, and uh, look forward to having you on a second time where maybe we can focus a little bit more on whether or not Ricky ever did get parole or not. <laughs> that sounds great. Thanks a lot, guys. You always do a great job, and I'm uh, uh, really honored to be a guest with you. Thank you. We appreciate that. Talk to you soon. All right, I want to thank Andrew Buckholz for being on the podcast today. Appreciate that. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we have been promoting for the last few weeks a book called 11th Heaven at O'Bannon in the 1995 National Basketball Champion UCLA Bruins by Rob Mish. And uh, after the break, we're going to talk to Rob about the book. Uh, Rob is really excited about the work he did in this book. He's very passionate about it, and that's going to come over in what is a pretty long interview, uh, kind of let Rob go and, and talk and do his thing. So there's a lot of Rob and not a lot of me. It's a long interview, but I encourage you to check it out. Uh, it's a really great book, and he's really passionate about it. So let's take a break since it is a long interview and right away get started with uh, Rob Mish about 11th Heaven. Our next guest is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and is a graduate of San Diego State University. He made his first appearance on the podcast while promoting his book, uh, The Last Natural, where he chronicled a year embedded with the College of Southern Nevada, uh, watching Bryce Harper, and he's making his third appearance today uh, to talk about his book, 11th Heaven, at O'Bannon and the 1995 uh, National Championship. UCLA Bruins. He's making his third appearance on the show. Uh, warm sportscasters, welcome to Rob Mish. What's up, Rob? Hey, Steve. How you doing, man? It is great to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you. Um, you know, you sent me the book over the summer, and uh, yeah. it was actually right before uh, I got married and went on my honeymoon. And I think I told you a story maybe over, over Twitter or whatever, but I remember one day... Uh, the book was on the table, and uh, my, uh, the first lady of the sportscasters we call her, she was like, what is that book, or whatever, and asked me about it, and I'm explaining to her, and her eyes are just like glazed over, rolled in the back of her head, like she just was like, not, you know, it's like, well, yeah, oh, okay. So then, a couple weeks later, we end up in Las Vegas, and we're at the Caesars Palace, and they have this like kind of a fancy mall called the forum shops and there's this like memorabilia store in there where pete rose always signs stuff uh, right. but actually that day it was uh well you're in vegas you know this you're in vegas uh that day Earl yep. campbell was there but whatever um so <laughs> we're walking through this store and you know those uh those banners that they have that you can buy they're like championship banners and they have all of the championships for the teams absolutely they're almost uh 
they're almost like welcome mats, but they're bigger than that, and they're kind of feltish, right? And, and pretty they, colorful, and they're pretty neat tributes. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome. So, yeah, they have for some reason they have these all like lined up in a corner, but like the UCLA one was on another wall, so it's almost like by itself. And I, I told her, I'm like, you see that one up there? She's like, yeah. I'm like, you remember that book from the coffee table? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, this is why he wrote a book about that guy. Look at You can see up there. Look at the dates. All those championships are together. And then there's that one in 1995. That's the guy he wrote about, the one who was the star on that team. And she was like, <laughs> oh, I get that it. Is, that yeah. is funny, man. There's no more physical evidence, is there? Yeah, because when I was trying to explain it to her without that, I mean, it was Duffy. Yeah. I mean, she couldn't have cared less, but... Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Another thing I was uh, thinking about this book is just about Ad O'Bannon himself. Have you had Have you had this where you're talking to someone about the book and you're explaining it to them or maybe they read it a little bit and they're like, I thought he was that guy that was suing the NCAA. Like, I thought he was playing now. I didn't realize that the guy suing the NCAA was from... 1995 right have you is there that kind of person out there like because i thought of that there there is um it's it's interesting because normally the circles i walk in are are sports people and veteran people and they know them and they knew they knew that team and they, they even watched it and whatnot but but of late and by that i mean boy maybe the last couple years um I really come across people who who the face rings a little bell, the the name rings a little bell, but but not the depth or the perspective or context or anything. No, just maybe just a, and, and the ring of the bell is a real little one too. It's 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 distant and uh, the connections are few, right? Um, and and that's more with general public people, right? Um, and and I do get that a lot. And to make the connection that this guy is that guy and this book is his story and the beautiful selfish thing for me is retracing his life to exactly up to the UCLA days and up to that season and just every little thing that went into making him and building him into such a such a strong leader and how the irony of here we are 18, 19, 20 years later, for him to be the face of that lawsuit was just absolutely poetic. Sonny Vaccaro approached maybe a dozen other people, uh, guys who played college ball, like Tyus Edney, for instance. None of them agreed to be the face of the lawsuit for for a lot of reasons, Tyus was just getting into his coaching career at UCLA, so he obviously couldn't do anything that might jeopardize that. That's obvious, and that's a lot of the excuses or reasons for a lot of them. But it just is, it's more than poetic that here we are so many days after that title season, and it's Ed who is standing up with the steel spine for elite college hoopsers and footballers everywhere. So uh, so for me, in the purpose of the book, it's, it, was, it was very cool to have someone who was so in the game 20 years ago whose name is still so prominent and important in the game today. Right. Let's back up a little bit. Tell me a little sure. bit about uh, how it came about that you were writing a book about Ed O'Bannon and the 1995 UCLA basketball team. 
Sure. Um, there's a couple little fingers to it. I'll try to be brief. Um, when I was writing the book about Bryce Harper in the 2010 season at the junior college here on the outskirts of Vegas, uh, periodically I, I kept an index card next to my computer. What might I want to do next? And always at the top of the list was 95 UCLA. And I should fill in your listeners also that uh, I've been a sports writer for almost 30 years. And during the 90s, I covered UCLA for the Pasadena Star News, UCLA football and basketball. So I was right there with that team and their run to the uh, to glory in 95 in Seattle. So I, I guess another part of the background that's kind of important is Halfway through that season, 94-95, it was very early January, 95, and a, a little light bulb went off atop my head. And I remember meeting with Jim Herrick, the coach, after a practice, and I asked him about writing a book on the team. Um, they had been undefeated at that point, and I said, if this season goes a certain way, I'm thinking about doing a book about the team. And uh, you might laugh in the book. He had a penchant for, for calling most beat writers a name other than their real name. So John Wilmer, with an N as in Nancy, became John Wilmer, with an okay. M as in Mary. So he'd call John Wilmer. And Tim Kawakami became Tim Kamakawi. He, early on, when I was covering him in 1990, when I first started covering him, he started calling me Minch instead of Mish. So it was his own little way to kind of maybe get a dig at you and kind of keep you on your toes, let you know that you weren't exactly that important. And so I asked him after this practice in January 90 about maybe doing a book about the team after the season, if it goes a certain way. And he looked at me and says, Minch? You don't need me for that. What are you asking me for? And I said, well, I would need you, and I would need a lot of help from you. If it goes a certain way, I would need a ton of assistance from you in filling in some cracks about stuff going on behind the scenes right now that I'm not privy to. And uh, he shook his hand. He stuck his hand out, and he shook my hand. And so he was in. Um, I'll try to make this part of the section very short. The whole rest of the year, I went above and beyond the duty, interviewing guys and doing stories, not just for the purposes of doing a feature for the daily newspaper, but I was going deeper for, for the purposes of a book, not just what your last year of high school was like and who did you decide among UCLA to go attend and why UCLA. I went farther back in their lives and really got into the essence of why each kid did what they did. So by the time they won it all in Seattle, we come back to, to L.A. in Poly Pavilion. There was a student celebration at Poly Pavilion, and the place was probably very close to packed. In each corner of the arena, there was uh, yellow and, and blue balloons tied together in streamers and confetti all around and a little stage in center court. The side of the court was set up for a game, but of course it wasn't a game. So while the tables were set up for media, there was no cloth over the table, which could maybe hide what was below the table. That would play a big role with me because I sat down where I always sat for games. I put 
I lugged my computer bag, lugged it, placed it below the table. In that computer bag were micro cassettes of interviews with every player. I had notepads from the season, which probably numbered 15 or 16 complete full notepads, details of practices and whatnot and interviews in those notepads. I had a little black book in there with numbers of agents and publishing houses and contacts of parents. Everything you could imagine for a book was in this computer bag, including the computer, with all of my stories and all the details in the computer. The celebration ended. I go talk to Ed O'Bannon for two minutes. I maybe asked, asked him three questions and uh, about the, this, about the celebration, about the capper to the whole season, about the capper to his fantastic journey. Now he's a champion. I go back to sit down at the side court table, and somebody had ripped off my computer bag. Uh, somebody had walked by, and it was... Uh, the Final Four media gift that year was, uh, believe it or not, a, a pretty sweet black computer bag. And on the side was the, the pretty colorful Seattle Final Four logo. And all of my stuff, for once, for the first time all season, I could put everything regarding the book in one place. It was that thick and big and convenient. And it was that bag that got ripped off at that student celebration. And uh, I... I was pretty beside myself. Um, yeah, that I couldn't sucks. believe it was gone. I ran outside on campus. Uh, I looked around for anybody carrying a black bag, and uh, uh, I don't know what I would have done if I had found someone run away with the bag. You know, I, I don't want to exaggerate that too much. I'm sure I wouldn't have punched them out or anything. But the point of all of that is here we are today, and if if I somehow learned of who took that bag. If, if somehow he was right before me and I had a chance to meet him, I would definitely give him a hug and give him 20 bucks <laughs> and maybe even buy him lunch because he did me a huge favor. Because you wrote a better book now than you could have then or because of something else? <laughs> Absolutely. Because, um, Flash forward to the Bryce Harper book, and uh, I finally had an idea of what it took to write a book and right. just how ultra-demanding it is and how you can have nothing else on your mind or in your life. It was just so all-encompassing. Um, I got laid off by the Las Vegas Sun in uh, December '09. I had been laid off before in my career, which was great, which was which was beautiful because once you're laid off you understand it's not the end of the world something good if not very good if not great would be right around the corner and that's the lesson of that so when i got laid off in december 09 that was the lesson i, I never thought about myself for a second it was quite a bloody round of layoffs and i i i truly felt horrible for everybody else who got the axe that day they didn't deserve that and there was a lot of mismanagement above and um pretty pretty crappy business behavior that uh, sent a lot of people on the streets that day. I, I never paused about what I was going to do. I knew something would be right around the corner. And one month later to the day, fortunately, I was very close to uh, Tim Chambers, who was the coach of the CSN baseball team, who is now the coach at UNLV. One thing led to another, and there I was in the dugout for Bryce's games. I was 
had a, a bench seat for that incredible historic season. I was on the coach for road trips. So get laid off was was just a, a it was a great thing. It was a springboard to the next chapter of my career. And so knowing exactly what it would extract from your soul writing a book. Well, now I knew after the Harper book. And so on December 1, 2012, the previous day I had finished all of my responsibilities for an additional chapter for the paperback version of the Bryce Harper book. So it was that day that a big part of me wanted to just hibernate for three or four months because I was right. just beat. I was just absolutely exhausted. Uh, there was even a part of me that really wondered if I ever wanted to write another book again, knowing exactly what the toll would be. Um, and then I talked myself out of it. I thought, well, okay, I know how difficult it is, but now I know how to do it and I know what it means. I know what it takes. I know what the demands will be. And why would I just throw that knowledge away? Why, why would I not use that to my benefit again? Whatever I do next would have to be better because now I know how to do it. And so on December 1, 2012, atop my index card next to my computer, as I said, I would update it periodically and always, always, always at the top of that list for what to do next was UCLA 95. And fortunately for me, not only did I have a great relationship with everybody involved in that 95 UCLA team, but Ed O'Bannon, I live in Henderson, Nevada, and Ed O'Bannon lives and works 15 minutes from me. So wow. over the course of recent years, I would have uh, um, occasion to write about him, uh, maybe long features or shorter features, but I always had reason to stay in touch with him with some type of regularity. So on December 1st, 2012, I drove down to his dealership. He's a, he's a marketing and, and promotions ace over at uh, Finley Toyota, a quite a big dealership here in, in uh, Southern Nevada. So I knew where he worked. I drove down to his office unannounced, walked right in. He was there. And I, I tried to have some kind of an explanation <laughs> for, for how I was going to go about a book on the 95 UCLA team. Uh, it was, it was about a two hour talk and I did all the talking. Um, so I like remember, that. I remember asking him if the story of that team had been told, has your story truly accurately been told Has your teammates stories been told about that, that season. And he looked at me and he said, no, no, everybody is dying to talk about what really happened, how it happened, how we all came together. Ultimately, he stood up and he shook my hand and he told me he was in. And one of the other major reasons why he was in, he would never forget. He has never forgotten and never will forget how gray my face was that day at Pauley Pavilion, right, right in, the, in the seconds after my computer bag had been ripped off. Well, let me ask you this, because you talked about how you feel like the time, uh, how it's sort of a favor, a blessing in disguise, and how the time yep. made you a better writer. When you revisited this story, um, what, 20 years later now, uh, and we're talking to the players 
Do you think you got a better perspective or, or a different or more interesting perspective having the time have passed for them as well? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, they all remembered me, um, and I, I don't mean that to, to pump my stature up or anything, but but when, you, when you're on the beat, you get kind of close to players yeah, and coaches yeah. and whatnot. And so, um, like I said before, I had a good relationship with all those guys. That's not usually the case. Typically, on any given season, you've rubbed someone the wrong way. And on previous UCLA teams, I can name you a couple players who, to this day, I don't ever want to see again. Who, <laughs> who, uh, it's just oil and vinegar with some people. And, and I'm sure some listeners can can uh, attest to that. In life, you just meet meet people who are just going to rub you the wrong way, and you're going to rub them the wrong way. So, so in that respect, I was really fortunate to really have a good relationship with all those guys. I wound up having about uh, 18 or 20 lunches with Ed. Again, I had no idea what his involvement would entail. I just thought that, you know, let's let's go to lunch. I'm going to pick your brain. I'm going to go deep. And we might have to have a few lunches. But he, again, he was always in. He was He always gave me his time. And he probably... He probably ended up giving me close to a hundred hours, and I can I can definitely tell you that uh, he bared his soul to me. He he really opened up, and uh, it was neat for me to go back and, and revisit that era because the first as soon as Ed was in, well then I was in. This was my next project. I was diving in, and for 22 months, there was nothing else in my life. Uh, I would sleep. This UCLA project was there, and uh, it was an unfortunate stretch, too, because uh, my dad passed away in January 2013, right as uh, I was sort of nearing the end of this project. And so that was quite a challenge, keeping my keeping my blinders on, right, keeping your head in writing it. this book. Yeah. So, uh, But I know he was... He was proud. I was also very happy that I was able to dedicate the, the Harper book to my parents, and I didn't tell them that previously. So when, when I finally sent them the book, it was a complete surprise to them that that I dedicated that to them. So it was one of the few times I was able to to give my dad kind of a priceless gift. So I know he appreciated that. Um, what what Ed could not have known though is once he shook my hand, that sent me to Prague. That sent me to Bangkok, it sent me to Japan, to New York, because it was very important for me to, to hunt down everybody from that team and meet with them in person, because there was no other way to convey to them how serious I was about this. So, Well, that, may, uh, that makes me think, did, was, as I want to ask you this, was there a Mr. Harper uh, for this book? You know, how Mr. Harper for the last book was kind of like a pain in the ass and really didn't help you that much and almost made things difficult. Was there a 11th heaven version of Mr. Harper or was did you know, the, did the relationship previous you had just kind of make it much easier on that front? It, it, it really made it easier. Um, and I, I went to Nagoya, Japan. There's a city outside Nagoya called... Um, Aishen, A-I-S-H-E-N, and in Aishen is a team called the uh, 
Aishan Seahorses. That's the team that J.R. Henderson has played for for uh, he's going on 15 years with Aishan. And I, I went there at the end of January uh, 2012. Uh, was it 20, no, the end of, of 2013. My dad passed away in January 2014. It was the end of January 2013 that I went to uh, Japan to see J.R. Henderson's team play Charles O'Bannon's team. Hmm. Two guys from that team who were playing in the Japanese League, and I, I went to spend a weekend with them, uh, actually about four or five days. I watched them play against each other on a Saturday and Sunday, and before and after that, spent time with them at uh, going out to dinner and meeting with them in J.R.'s apartment, and uh, just tra- tracing back that era. Um, the the neat thing is when when you're a beat writer for any team, you might think you know what's going on. You might think you're busting your ass in going to practice, talking to players, going over and above the call of duty to to get the information for your stories, for your readers, so that they have a feeling of what's going on, how that heart is beating on that team. So here I am, uh, 18, 19 years after the fact, uh, just piecing that season all together again, and I had no clue what was going on. It is bizarre and amazing how it's going on right below your nose, and you don't know it. So... That was really revealing. That was very eye-opening, and I, I, I basically went into it as soon as as soon as Ed shook my hand and was in. My next stop was to UCLA. So I uh, I know some great people in their uh, sports information department. I spent a couple days, probably twelve hours total, going through all of their files from ninety four ninety five copying everything. The first thing I copied was box scores from every game. So then I could I could literally lay those out here in my office and just look at the games, look at who did what and and I tried to remember, okay, let's 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 go back when I was covering that team and I have the I have the gist of what was going on the court, but I was hoping that that stuff would kind of trick my my memory bank into remembering what was going on off the court. I was trying to fill in those blanks, basically all of those details that were in that computer bag that got ripped off. So it was, it was actually fun. Like, like maybe, uh, uh, I don't know, one of the old, some of the old detectives, but I felt like a detective going back in time, putting all those pieces back together. And, and I went into all the interviews with these guys just, I had probably I had so many questions. I just figured that if I could answer every one of my questions, then I will be doing justice to the readers and that season. So um, that's sort of how all that went out. But boy, that was a long-winded answer <laughs> to your question. The one thing that stands out from uh, um, any peculiar stuff from the 22 months of putting this together would be um, I turned 50 when I was writing this story and uh, I have never felt every minute of my age until I found myself way out in Bangkok. See, I was in, since I was in Japan, 
already so far out on a limb. I figured, what the hell? If I'm in Japan, why not go to Bangkok? Because the Reserve Center was in Bangkok. Um, he has a very successful youth academy in Bangkok. His name is Ike Nwakwo, N-W-A-N-K-W-O. And I thought, man, if I'm in Japan, i got to go out to Bangkok and see Ike. And so I spent 48 hours in Bangkok. And uh, I went from pretty cold temperatures in Japan and snow to not hot, but pretty warm and humid conditions in Bangkok. And those those drastic changes really screwed up my system. So when I got back to the Bangkok airport, I was coming down with a cold, and I was facing 48 hours where I was going from Bangkok to Taipei to Nagoya, spending the night, waking up, flying, taking a little flight from Nagoya to Tokyo, a big one from Tokyo to San Francisco, and then San Francisco back home to Las Vegas. Wow. That's the boldest adventure on one trip trying to get somewhere that I've ever taken in my life. And it royally kicked my ass. Because when when that flight, let's see, we, we, we left Bangkok for Taipei, then Taipei for Nagoya. On, on all of those ascensions and descensions, my ears never popped. And so I was coming down with a cold. That reinforced that I was coming down with a doozy of a cold. Fortunately, at the airport in Nagoya, there's a, there's a hotel right on the airport grounds, so I could literally slink from the airplane maybe a 1,000 yards into a hotel, and I got in that room, and I was in a fetal position for 12 hours, <laughs> just hating life. And... Um, I should probably spare some details right now for right. you and your listeners. Let me ask but, you. Let, <laughs> All right, go ahead. Finish right. up, and then I'll ask you something else. Okay. Okay, I'll ask you now. Uh, Bob Myers, was it a challenge uh, getting everything you needed from him, giving his sort of, I'm sure, encompassing position that he has moved on to? Well, I, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to take the political, politically correct route and tell you that we just never hooked up, but he blew me off pretty good. Okay. He was out here He was out here for a summer league with the Warriors, and uh, it really took me a long time to hunt him down. I knew he was in the Thomas and Mack Center with the Warriors, but I didn't want to bother him inside because I knew inside he'd be, he'd be uh, doing his business, maybe talking to other GMs, watching his players. So I, I didn't want to bother him inside that arena so i waited outside the arena i knew exactly where he was going to exit and i waited six hours for him to finally exit and then i mean no big deal he just he just blew me off he didn't have time for me and uh i thought we were going to meet the next day and have breakfast or something and then he blew me off then and i thought well that, i mean that's all right um that's that's not a big deal i tried and uh didn't really need his input anyway. When right. it came down to it, um, there was three guys that I did not reach, and all of them were at the end of the bench. So none of them really mattered. I would have loved to have had the input of everybody who was close to that team, on that team, in any any capacity or or manner. Uh, but there was three guys I didn't get. But that didn't matter because I got all everybody who mattered. And... Right. Uh, 
Plus, you know what, Steve, I thought, looking back, there was a few other people I would have liked to have talked to get their input. And when I think about it, you know, that book is already sick for people who haven't held it or seen it. It's 450 pages. And there's no way it could be 550 or 600 pages. So what I got was sufficient. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no big deal. We'll just we'll just cheer for the Hawks in the uh, in the playoffs this year. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's doing a hell of a job, isn't he? Bob Myers, for people who don't know, he's obviously the GM of the Golden State Warriors. And he, he, uh, he went on from UCLA to get his law degree at, uh, I believe, Loyola Marymount out in L.A. And then he ended up working... I think for Arn Tellum for a few years, and by the time the Warriors hired him, he had a real good idea of how the sausage was made in the NBA, and he's done nothing but really thrive with it. Kudos to him. Um, he was a really good basketball mind, and what he's doing now is uh, evidence of that, for sure. Yeah, we had Chris Ballard on a few weeks ago after he wrote his yeah. piece uh uh, for Sports Illustrated about uh, the Golden State and Bob. Uh, I was thinking about this the other night uh, when I was watching the um, Kentucky and Wisconsin game, and I knew I was going to yeah. have you on to to talk about this. When you think about the 95 uh, season for for UCLA, it's obviously a very dominating season. I mean, they were never ranked lower than seven, spent a lot of time at number two, and by March, you know, number one all, all, all for the rest of the way. They did lose the what was that seventh game I think of the season to or, against Oregon. Uh, were you thinking about them at all? Like I was watching Kentucky and think that now they didn't have a Wisconsin team in the in the Final Four, another number one seed. They had a number four seed in Oklahoma State. Right. But did right. you think when they got to Seattle, having that one loss just kind of made the Final Four took the pressure off of it of a bit that. That that loss early helped them. Were you thinking about that at all when you were watching the Final Four this weekend? I I, I did, and uh, I I'm, I don't think it was in the manner that that you maybe were pondering it or viewing it. It was it was in. It's so funny you bring it up because it was prevalent on my mind in in kind of a different aspect. Um, the the Oregon loss, you know. Um, they also lost to Cal that season at home, and it was an ass-kicking. It was, uh, I can still see Tremaine Folks and some of those guys on UCLA's court. Just, oh my God, they were raining threes, and uh, Ed actually made Charles, his younger brother, Charles O'Bannon, he made him cry on the bench because Charles was just getting lit and during a timeout. Ed didn't even get to the bench yet. He was laying into Charles for laying down. Ed was yelling at him, I raised you better than this, and here you are laying down. And uh, soon enough, tears were strolling, strumming down Charles' cheeks. And uh, the record book, however, says that that UCLA team was 32-1. and Right, because they Not, had None of the players buy into that because later on, because of Todd Bozeman, right? That's an asterisk game, and that that loss was overturned, and and the Bruins were given a victory for that game. But if you talk to any of those Bruins today, they still say it was a loss, and that their their record was thirty one and two that season. They don't 
they don't buy into the fact that, okay, Bozeman was caught cheating, giving money to Jelani Gardner's parents, so that loss became a W. No, 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 no. Ed and none of those other guys buy into that or believe that. They were, they were 31 and 2 and great quote about that, about the overturning of that defeat. He goes, well, they still beat us on the court. On the court, which is where it mattered, they beat us. So they, they lost their first Pac-10 game. Uh, in fact, you know what's funny, Steve? It was, it was their first game after I had that talk with Jim Herrick. Here they were 7-0 and at that point, early January, and then I was talking to him about maybe writing a book after the season if, if it went a certain way. Obviously, if they won it all, I was going to hope to write a book. The very next game, three days later in Eugene, Oregon, they melted down in the final minute and lost to, uh, to Oregon. So you're referring to, to that loss. Right. And I, I, think, I think for that team going into that NCAA tournament, um, having lost, I think that was nothing but a positive. However, the fact that they had to get by Missouri in the second round in Boise, Idaho, that was the test of their lives. And uh, it's that game is absolutely stunning to me. As I went back and replayed it and talked to all the particulars, uh, Tyus Edney had rolled an ankle in their opener against Florida International. So, boy, I, it's unbelievable how, how you overturn stones because it was uh, in a talk with his dad about that game. I never knew how close Tyus was to not playing in that game. And, of course, if he doesn't play against Missouri, he's not there at the end to make one of the all-time stunning full-court shots in NCAA history. So um, they did a thing on his ankle after the Florida International game. Herrick wanted Tyus's dad, Pink, to stay away from Tyus. Jim Herrick wanted UCLA's medical staff to tend to Tyus and to treat his ankle. But Hank knew there was only one way his son was going to be on the court 36 hours later to play against Missouri. And he finally got Jim Herrick to relent and let him do what he wanted to do. Hank Edney to this day swears that he has not had any issues with his back because he once had a Jamaican guy named Johnny lay tiles in his bathroom, in, in his home in Long Beach. And one thing led to another, and Hank Edney had, had a back issue while Jamaica Johnny was fixing his bathroom. Jamaica Johnny ends up coming up with this method of treating Hank's back. Basically, you, you heat tiles. You, you heat them to a very high temperature in a pot of boiling water. Then you put them in another pot of water that isn't as hot. And then you put that tile on your back. And it's going to burn you, but you gotta, you got to bite a bullet. And Jamaica just war by this technique for healing Hank's back. To this day, Hank says his back is great. He hasn't had any issues, never visited a chiropractor. After Jamaica Johnny's uh, tile remedy, no problems. So that is what Hank wanted to do to Tyus's ankle that night and the next morning. 
and voila, he does it. And Tyus is able to play against Missouri. He's able to turn in one of the most fantastic plays in college hoops history. And there he is. Although there's an ultimate irony in that Tyus was too injured. His, his right hand was too injured to play in the finale against Arkansas. That's when Cameron Dollar entered the picture, the super sub, who wound up playing the absolute game of his life against Arkansas. So the little, the little twists and turns were... Just absolutely great to uncover, and uh, yeah. I was pretty honored to be able to put that between uh, two covers, for sure. One of my favorite parts of the book is when you talk about the the Edney shot and the play and tying it back yeah. to their loss to Michigan like 700 yeah. days earlier, and uh, Jimmy King and uh, Herrick insisting that uh, Edney uh, make the shot. Uh, just really interesting reporting, uh, for sure. One of the best parts of the book. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, surrounds that that part of, uh, for sure. Um, I was thinking too about how uh, they they consider themselves thirty one and two, not thirty two and one, uh, right. because of, of a scandal overturned that. But you know, if not for the probation issues at UCLA, uh, Ed O'Bannon might never have even been there to be a part of this team, and and they obviously wouldn't have went uh, thirty one and two. Uh, so even oh, though, oh man, you talk about twists and turns, Steve. Um, he visited UNLV in February 1990, and that's when the dynamo was rolling. Stacy Ogden, Larry Johnson, Greg Anthony, I mean, those guys were just, you could tell something was coming on the horizon that was going to be really good for UNLV. And Ed really, really wanted to be a part of it. He attended a show at the Mirage, and he, wind, he winds up on his official visit to UNLV he uh, he watches UNLV beat Arizona on national TV on a Sunday. That night, he ends up going to the Mirage. He ends up sitting in a uh, a semicircular booth in in the most prestigious area of the Mirage, next to Stacy Auger, next to Larry Johnson. Julius Irving walks in and walks up to them to introduce himself to them. Buster Douglas walks in just a week after beating Tyson in Japan, and he walks up to introduce himself to these guys. And so Ed told me, my God, here we are, and the heavyweight champion of the world comes up to us to say hello to us. He goes, how could you not want to be here? Of course, one thing leads to another. He gives an oral commitment to Tarkanian, Jerry Tarkanian, in May 1990. And the only reason Jerry wanted a oral commitment is because the NCA was really breathing down their necks at that very moment. And he insisted that Ed O'Bannon and Sean Tarver give him just an oral commitment. Uh, he didn't want a written commitment, because then if the NCA comes down with sanctions, a written commitment is that much more difficult to get out of. And in fact, then, then to get out of your commitment, one of the stipulations is you have to sit out a year at your next institution. Right. So Jerry wanted to spare these young guys uh, all of that, those cobwebs, and uh, he wanted them to easily get out of a verbal commitment. That's May 1990. August 1990, of course, sanctions hit, and UNLV is going to be penalized, and he lets both those guys out of their commitments. Both end up at UCLA, and it was on October 9th, 1990, six days before the start of practice at UCLA when Ed O'Bannon is playing a pickup game in an auxiliary gym at the Wooden Center 
and that's when uh, the horror of happens, and he rips apart his uh, his his knee and yeah. has to undergo this uh, procedure that even today is controversial and radical. His his ACL was completely severed, so typically someone who gets an injury like that, a, a basketball player, will uh, they'll have it repaired by their own tissue. Uh, right, but he used I, a I cadaver, mean, right? Pardon me? He, he didn't use his own, right? He used a cadaver. Uh, he, he did not. Yeah, he, he used an, an allograft. Uh, see, it was just such a severe injury that he and his dad decided to, A, they didn't want to compound the injury in that knee and take material from that already tattered knee and and make that rehab even longer. And then they, they didn't want to take material from the other knee because why tamper with a perfectly healthy knee and make that weaker? So what they did is they ended up speaking with a, a, an outside doctor who took the Achilles tendon off a cadaver and used that to replace Ed's anterior cruciate ligament by far it's it's radical surgery and uh i'm sure you came across this in the book but one of my favorite parts of the book is meeting with the surgeon and we had we spoke for hours about exactly what he did and how he had to do it um i met with him in his office in tarzana california just up the coast from la and uh i got back home to vegas i transcribed my notes he i, I remember that he told me this in person. So when I replayed the tape, obviously I, I heard this again. But more than once during our interview, he told me, I have the tape. It's somewhere in my garage. So when I'm home in Vegas replaying that tape, here he is telling me that again. And I stopped the tape. I called him up and I said, Dr. Shapiro, I, I know you gave me a lot of time. I'm grateful but I'm not doing my job unless I ask you if I can come down to your place and watch that surgery. <laughs> and he did not hesitate. He said, down. so two weeks later, I drove to Malibu. I'm in this doctor's, the master bedroom of his home in Malibu. And we're in the, on the because it was only in the master bedroom where he had a VCR. Remember, this is two years ago, right. and uh, Not a lot of I'm surprised around. he even had a TV with a VCR hookup. Mm -hmm. But that was the only VCR hookup in his house because he had the the uh, was a VHS tape of the surgery. So here we are in his bedroom. He replays the five hour operation of his career right in front of me and his wife is bringing us lemonade and and i'm watching i don't i'm squeamish around blood and i don't like it and care for it but this was a, a bizarre deal where as much as i hated to watch to watch the blood and the gore i had to i, I couldn't turn my head um it was such a major injury that nine days later it took him 45 minutes. He had made the cuts. He went in, and it took him 45 minutes just to drain the blood because the blood was gushing out like a, just in torrents. And so he wasn't even able to get down and dirty and start the, the mending and the cutting until it was 50 minutes into the surgery. But I can't tell you enough how wild that was watching Ed O'Bannon's knee surgery. It was incredible. 
Well, nobody can say you didn't report the hell out of this book, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> hey, Steve, and I'll, we got off on tangents there, but the one corollary I wanted to make to you when I was watching the Wisconsin game, and, and yeah. you, you were, I'm so glad you brought it up, uh, because the corollary is, and, you know, I'm partial because I'm from Milwaukee, but to me, Wisconsin won the national championship on Saturday. Monday was just gravy, and whatever happened, happened. They put up a good fight. Some things happened, and maybe they were exhausted. Maybe Kentucky took all the wind out of them, so he didn't have a, a finishing kick with 10 minutes left. All I know is, and, and I, did a, I did a radio show from um, Wisconsin the other night, and I just wanted to tell people there, don't even think of jumping off your roof, because those guys played their guts out Saturday. To me, that was the national championship. And the point is, that's what continuity does for you. When you stay in a program and you have seniors and you have juniors and you have, you have, you actually call, I mean, this is trite to say, but you actually call a family atmosphere. They gave a damn about each other and the program and the, what they represented. And that's exactly what that UCLA team was about. And that's just what we don't see anymore. So that was really the connection for me. And uh, I'm not so sure if you took it that deep, but that, that really made an impression on me. And uh, it's tough for me watching basketball these days, but that Wisconsin team brought back uh, a little bit of the love that I've lost for the game. Yeah, and I agree with a lot of what you said about them maybe running a little bit out of gas. And I actually said the the exact same thing to my brother who yeah. uh, going into Monday, like, you know, I like Duke to win just because I thought – I felt like Wisconsin won their national championship on Saturday. So I had that thought about that wow. as well. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, one other thing that's really interesting is I'll never forget Jim Herrick in 94-95. He kept reinforcing to those guys, not not – at every practice, but regularly, he kept telling them that, man, you guys are going to have to play through a lot. You're going to have to play through crowds. You're going to have to play through opponents. You're going to have to play through each other at times, and you're going to have to play through me. I'm going to be a bitch at times, and you're going to have to put up with it, and you're going to have to suck it up, and you're going to have to play through all of that. I thought of that. When, when I saw Wisconsin start to wilt in those last 10 minutes on Monday. And, man, I just thought of Herrick, and there's just going to be so much you're going to have to play through it. Can you? Will you? Do you have the finishing kick? And I don't mean that as a grudge or a, to be picking on the badges, because like I said, what they did Saturday, I will never forget the rest of my life. And to me, that was huge. But I just recalled Herrick and, and just how how... He, he just had such a great touch with that team as far as controlling them and as far as going the other way and letting them run. He was pretty loosey-goosey on offense, and he would kind of let them run. That was a highlight of that team. Is Nobody in the world wanted to run with 94-95 UCLA, and Arkansas paid for it and some other guys paid for it. And uh, I, I just thought Herrick takes a lot of – a knocks in his personal and professional life, but how he handled that team was absolutely brilliant. The book is called 11th Heaven, Ed O'Bannon and the 1995 National Basketball Champion UCLA Bruins. I know some of you have read it because they're down to only seven in stock on Amazon uh, paperback. Uh, it's also available in a Kindle version. Those never run out. They have plenty of those in stock. Uh, so you can get a Kindle version as well on Amazon.com. Is there an iTunes version or just Kindle? 
You know, I, I think you can get it on. Uh, I think you can get it at at Barnes and Noble as far as the hard copy. Also, okay. and I think also that that other version. But you can also go to iBook. And okay. Yeah. On i iBook is cool because you can see, I believe, uh, the first chapter for free. Yes, they do have and, samples. And, for and, sure. and as far as yeah. the quantity number on Amazon, that's an artificial number. Whatever you order, they're going to get. <laughs> and so they're teasing on that. They're trying to pump up. Yeah. the uh, they're promoting for right. you a bit. Yeah, right. It's also on nine percent sale. They've discounted it one dollar and eighty cents, eighty-eight cents. Oh, look at it. Yeah, cool. so there's a big sale there. Uh, you can follow Rob on Twitter. He's at Rob M I E C H. Anything else you want the listeners to know about? finding you or the book or anything else you're working on? Uh, no, Steve, you know, uh, that book, that book really, like I've explained, and I won't bore anybody anymore with it, that, that was definitely the unfinished business of my life. So a lot of pride went into that to be able to document what those guys did and how they did it and why they did it. And uh, I can also tell you a little bit, the last 10 months, I've kind of stuck my big nose into the sweet science here in Las Vegas. So it appears that that'll very likely be book number three i can't really get into any particulars but it looks like boxing will be the topic of number three are you excited for uh for the fight in uh, may, may what may 2nd is it yes it is i I'm, i am excited but there's a bigger excitement going on with what al Heyman has done with premier boxing champions um He's the guy who poured, uh, I think more than 10 million into getting some, some very sweet, uh, TV slots for NBC and NBCSN, right. um, on, on specific dates this year. So what he has done to, to revive the sport has spilled over into other ventures to get boxing on over the air. And you might remember, uh, boxing was on NBC a little while back and it was the first time boxing had been on one of the three major networks in 30 years so uh, the sport really needed to be resuscitated kudos to Al Heyman for kind of being, being a lightning rod with that and it, it has spilled over into other entities trying to match that and trying to get boxing out there so hopefully in addition with this Mayweather-Pacquiao fight uh, we're going to see a lot more Good fights, and hopefully the sport becomes streamlined and loses some of that uh, rough edge it's had for so long, and we see some unification and uh, some good bouts coming up. So it's, I think it's going to be uh, a real good year for the sport, and that's not just me talking. That's that's the the voice of a lot of trainers and managers and boxers I've been hanging out with in Vegas. And so everybody's really excited with uh, what's on the horizon with boxing. Yeah, and I mean, we know Al's doing a great job with boxing, and his brother Paul Heyman is doing a great job in the WWE with Brock Lesnar. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't think they're actually brothers. I was joking. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. You got me. Right. Uh, again, it's at Rob M I E C H on Twitter. Thanks for letting us uh, feature this book. We really, uh, really enjoyed it. Enjoyed uh, uh, the uh, Harper book, and can't wait for number three as well. Well, my pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me again. I hope to talk to you again soon. Sounds great. Thank you. All right, got to thank our guests, Andrew Buckholz and Rob Mish, for being on the show. Will Leach is going to be on the podcast next week. Uh, also, Jeff Passan is going to be on in the next couple of weeks to talk baseball. Uh, obviously, we know the baseball season started on Monday. 
luckily, it's a very long season. We will find time uh, <laughs> to talk about baseball. And, of course, when the NHL and NBA playoffs end, there's a big gap there where it seems like there's nothing to talk about uh, with baseball. So uh, I didn't book anyone for today, uh, mostly because I had scheduled an interview with Jeff uh, Passon to be on, and he wanted to switch it uh, to sometime between April 20th and April 30th. Uh, so he'll be on somewhere in that uh, in that gap. Uh, if you want to listen to this podcast or any of our old ones, you can go to our website, www.sports-casters.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at sports underscore casters or at downlikesports. And you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. All right, my last thing this week, uh, April 11th, this coming Saturday, is International Tabletop Day. Uh, Will Wheaton... If I believe in Felicia Day and the people over at uh, Geek and Sundry who host Will Wheaton's YouTube show, Tabletop, started it. I think they give money to charity or something, but it is kind of a, just a way to get people into the hobby. You can go on the tabletopday.com and see there's a map, and you can find if there's any like uh, board game stores or like Magic the Gathering type hobby stores in your area that will be hosting board games. Um I don't know much about Tabletop Day beyond that, but board gaming is a cool way with a little bit of effort to uh, just find it's a it's a neat thing it, to it's a neat way to get uh, to gather with some friends and play games that uh, maybe you haven't heard of. With a little bit of research, you can find something that will fit your group. Either things that are lighter. Um, I think most people here board games or like the hobby of board gaming and immediately go to Dungeons and Dragons. Like we're sitting in a basement wearing wizard hats and stuff like that. Um, I, we played this past weekend a game called Camel Cup where you're betting on camels in a race. It's super light, super easy. Uh, I taught it to everyone there. No one had played it yet at that point. And it was a big hit. So, and this isn't the first time I've done that. I mean, it takes one person to be into board games to introduce casual people to it. And it's almost always a hit. So, it's a hobby that is easy enough to get into. Some of the games are a little bit pricey, 40 bucks, 50 bucks, but if you how else can you spend $40 and get hours and hours and hours of enjoyment on it? It's kind of similar to like a video game or something, but this is with a group of friends. So, it's worth looking into and if you want to go somewhere where there might be some people playing and you might be taught a game, check out tabletopday.com and find out if anyone in your area is hosting an event this weekend. You know, uh I think Cards Against Humanity yep. has uh, been a huge hit, and people having parties have uh, a lot of people have turned to that game uh, and and played it a lot. If you just want to have a group of friends over and play like a party type game, do you have some you might recommend beyond Cards Against Humanity? I like Things. Uh, it's called Things or Things in a Box, something like that. They sold it at Target. It's kind of similar in that with the right group, uh, it can be really funny. It's you get a category. It's like things you shouldn't do at a funeral type thing. And everyone writes something. We usually just, I, it's one of those games. You, you don't even care if you win or not, but you try to get laughs. So you write down the funniest, usually the most raunchy or inappropriate answer. And then one person reads them all and you try to guess who wrote what we've always had fun playing. Is it Balderdash? Yeah. Balderdash is kind of similar to things. Yeah. yeah where you have to guess who wrote, wrote the definition. And or, you're just really trying um, to write something to crack people up. Yep. Sort of. So, yeah. So, I'm, I don't have as many party games. Like, Things and Balderdash are probably my two go-to games. But there's a lot of... 
any itch you want to scratch, you could people probably like find apples it. to apples a lot. Too, That's almost exactly Cards Against Humanity, right? I mean, the opposite. Cards Against Humanity kind of ripped them off, but it's it's they call it uh, a game for terrible people, something like that. Cards <laughs> Against Humanity. All right, uh, one last thing for the show today. Last week, uh, we played Andrew Miller, uh, first NHL goal on a penalty shot, uh, former Yale captain. And he got sent back down to the NHL yesterday, not because he didn't do a great job in the NHL, but because they want him to be able to play in the playoffs okay. uh, in Oklahoma City. Uh, and uh, clearly there's not going to be any playoffs for Edmonton. Uh, but another kid on his line, uh, in the national championship game in 2013 uh, was Kenny Agostino, who's actually a really good friend of mine, and he is also uh, the hottest player in the AHL. couple stats for you. Uh, since March 1st, uh, Kenny's team, which is one of the worst in the AHL, uh, has played 17 games. Uh, in that span, Kenny has nine goals, and 14 assists. Wow. And has at least a point in 13 of the 17 games, two of which uh, were shutouts. Uh, so in the last 15 games, which his team has any goal, goal right. uh, you know, he has points in 13 of them. Uh, he's absolutely killing it. And I'm a little surprised, not because I didn't believe in Kenny uh, or know Kenny would succeed in the AHL, but because a point that people forget about him is that he was a true freshman at Yale. Uh, went right from high school hockey to playing a college hockey schedule uh, at an Ivy League school and hasn't played more than 37 games in a season uh, since at least high school uh, or sometime before that. Uh, he never played more than 37 at Yale. Even last year when he played his games at Yale, and his games in the NHL, he only got to 41. 41, yeah. Uh, he's played 60 now uh, in the AHL, and as opposed to running out of gas or slowing down, he's actually catching his stride and uh, really proving himself to be a player who is uh, probably too good for that league um, and won't really spend a lot of time there. Uh, this year's been great for him. Uh, he's had his ups and downs, um, and he spent some time in the doghouse. Uh, and he's worked his way out, and he's just absolutely killing it. And I'm very proud of him. Uh, as good as he is as a hockey player, he's equally as good as a kid. Uh, I don't know if I told this story on the show or not, but a few weeks ago uh, when we were at Yale and we had lost to Harvard uh, in double overtime, I think I did mention how hard of a scene it was, how mm-hmm. uh, the team came out together. There's a lot of tears. My brother was really upset, so upset to the point that I text Kenny and said, I think could you call Anthony? I think he'd really like to hear from you right now. And uh, Kenny did. He called him and talked to him. And uh, he, he texted me back to say that he had just talked to him. And as soon as I seen his message, I just called him right away. And I called him to thank him for calling Anthony. And before you knew it, Kenny was crying on the phone. Uh, just because he's such a sincere kid. Uh, he's got such a great heart. A good Italian kid from New Jersey. Came from a great family. He's got twin brothers. And he's also got a sister. Uh, so he's uh, one of four, uh, just a great kid. I'm so proud of him, uh, and he's killing it right now, just crushing the AHL. Uh, he's got a few games left. I'm going to go watch him play one more time this year in Syracuse uh, on the 17th, uh, which I think is the second last game of the year. And uh, he's just really finishing strong, really killing it. And I know he's even probably making people in Calgary wonder if they need him on the NHL roster for this playoff run oh, that's right, uh, yeah. because there isn't going to be one in Adirondack. So. 
keep it up, Kenny, and uh, really pumped for uh, a long career. I see. 